Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella. I'm Amy Scaria. And I'm Anna Linville. Today, we're welcoming Daniel Thomas Davis, a composer with deep roots in our community, whose work has taken him from the stages of Carnegie Hall and the Royal Opera House to monasteries in the Horn of Africa. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure to be with you. Dan is um, Hillsborough famous for his opera, Family Secrets, Kith and Kin, um, which is actually, the libretto was written by various Hillsborough authors. so we, we want to play you a short piece from this called Cemetery Song, and it's written by, the libretto was written by Francis Mays, um, and I hope you enjoy it. So Dan, what is the genesis of Family Secrets? What was the genesis of this piece? Well, it started as the brainchild of a North Carolina-based soprano that I've known and worked with for years, Andrea Moore, Andrea Edith Moore, um, who got together a group of writers, seven writers, all North Carolina writers, um, uh, to make this piece, um, which originally uh, started its life uh, as a kind of song cycle. But then as I started working on it, it became clear that this thing uh, had dramatic legs. Um, And so uh, a number of years ago, I got this uh, quite large um, stack. Um, It wasn't actually a stack because it was a series of emails, but then I printed printed out all the PDFs and it was a stack of prose, mostly prose, a bit of poetry uh, from these seven these seven writers, uh, uh, Alan Organis and uh, Michael Malone, uh, Dan Wallace, Francis Mays, Lee Smith, uh, Jeffrey Beam, and Randall Keenan. Was that seven? 
I think it was. And the piece we just listened to was by Francis Mays. Um, I know that's Michael Malone. Oh, Michael Malone was Cemetery Song. Sorry. Correct. No worries. Yeah, Michael. Um, he's quite a character. I mean, all of these authors are. Um, they are pillars of Hillsborough's community. Kind of Hillsborough. I mean, everyone. Um, the community. They support all of the artistic events in the community. They're always there, um, and so it's really nice. It was really wonderful to attend this opera. Um, I actually saw the black box performance of it in Durham. So it was really neat. Hillsborough and Durham and the, the arts community here is, is a real kind of a, a small place, but it's unique in, in how devoted it is to the arts. And I was just wondering, how did you come to be connected with this art scene down here in Hillsborough? Uh, it really, it started with Andrea. Um, who brought me in, brought me in at the beginning of the project. Um, and I, I got to know, um, uh, that crew of writers, um, Alan, I actually knew, uh, already, um, from out in the world. And, uh, um, and then we took it from there. I, uh, I grew up in North Carolina myself, um, uh, on a farm Southeast of Charlotte, um, and had, uh, spent a couple of years in and out of the triangle, and uh it it seemed like a good fit um and uh and so and so once we were all together and i like i said i had this this uh stack of prose and poetry uh i started to uh craft it all down into a into a single show wow nice now dan you have a deep connection to the south and southern music um i've read that you grew up using shape notes or shape singing shape note singing can you explain what that is Oh sure. Um uh shape note singing uh really emerges is again I'm I'll try not to be a, a history professor here for a second, um, which I'm not. Um but it, it emerges um oddly enough not in the south, um uh but uh, in the northeast, um in the first part of the nineteenth uh, century, um or actually even before, but really takes off um in the nineteenth century, in the first part of the nineteenth century as a way to uh to teach music, um, in which the note heads have shapes, um, that emerges into a congregational singing tradition that carries to the present day. Um, that's, I think a really fascinating combination and moving combination of, uh, of notated music, um, with this particular notation system, um, and oral tradition, uh, in which a lot of the inflection and the ornamentation, the style, um, is really, um, um, formed and gathered, um, through through oral practice, um, uh, but that but my 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 upbringing was really a, a combination of um, featured a combination of of musical uh, materials and sources. So I grew up uh, listening to a lot of country music, especially old time country music, um, and bluegrass and Appalachian music um, and gospel music. Um, but I I'm a pianist. I uh, was quite a serious pianist as a kid. Uh, and that was, was feeding my ears at the same time. Um, so I was playing Mozart and Brahms and, um, also listening to a lot of Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton, uh, at the same time. A true American composer, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) So what is your draw to the, to opera and to writing for the voice with your background as a pianist? It's funny, right? I mean, I, um... There, it's it's a mix of things. Um, so, I'm a word nerd. Um, uh, I uh, I've always been a reader, um, and uh, both both uh, fiction and nonfiction, and also poetry. Um, and um, I'm very much interested in the theater and in theatricality and music. Um, so, uh, I've been interested in opera for a long time, really since high school. Um, I, my first uh, little one act, I think, was my sophomore year in college. Um, and then I wrote another one at the end of my undergraduate and then took a long time away from um, operatic stage and then uh, came back to it um, really with a vengeance, I guess, in the past uh, past few years. Um, so there's that. Um, as for uh, the human voice, um, it's... 
I suppose, always been the source of great fascination uh, for me, the, the idiosyncrasies, uh, the eccentricities of the human voice, um, the ways in which we can recognize our favorite singers um, within, you know, a two second clip, um, which um, maybe goes against one's compositional uh, training, um, because so much of that is what we can't get on the page. Um, those of us who notate uh, music uh, in the classical tradition, um, or at least we don't we can't do it easily, I suppose, um, in, in conventional ways. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I would say it's both a kind of intellectual and, um, sort of metaphysical, uh, fascination. Um, and I've been working with singers for a long time and, uh, as a, as a, as a pianist and as a composer, um, and those are relationships that I value. Um, the encounter between the singing voice and language, um, is a magical one to me. And then once you throw in, um, uh, theater and and movement into that um it's 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 quite a quite a brew um the last thing i would add um uh to my my interest in opera and music theater um more generally um is that i i love collaborating with other artists be them writers or directors choreographers filmmakers visual artists i i like forging rich um collaborative relationship those are some of the most important ones in my life um I, I, there's certainly a musician performer and composer um colleagues that i cherish but um i also um uh, deeply ap appreciate um a number of collaborative relationships that i have um so yeah i think those things together um really the the word nerd well, let's take a listen to um, another, an excerpt from another of your operas, Impossible She. Sure. Uh, we'll talk about it afterward, but this is really interesting because um, one of the main characters is a radio. <laughs> Indeed, right. So yeah, it's really interesting. This is Interlude B from Impossible She. Latest news has struck me funny. Says you have no friends if you haven't got money. To all of us good folks in distress, I've got to get something off of my chest. 1932 won't be long, so when you place your vote, please don't vote wrong. Vote away those blues, those breadline blues. It's the rich man's job to make some rules in order to rid us. These breadline blues Now listen here folks And it ain't no joke We've gotta do something Or we'll just croak We can't get a job We've been fooled and robbed Got no money And the corn's all cobbed Vote away those blues Those breadline blues said to the long-eared mule, you'd better shut your mouth, you've never been to
That's such a fun piece. <laughs> it really is cool. Um, you know, Dan, I, I, um, I have a couple of questions for you about sure. the piece. One thing that struck me right away is when I was reading the synopsis of the piece and, and you know, how it um, deals with um, the 1930s and, of course, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And I was wondering, um, you know, how, I was thinking to myself, how would I approach this? And, and listening to how you approached it, immediately I'm struck by the way that you incorporated the style of music of the 30s. It sounds like it's I'm listening to the radio. Yeah, right. So um, there are a few things there. I mean, I mean, one is that I actually did use some source material. And uh, um, this is um, a kind of uh, f- a free version of, uh, of a song called Breadline Blues. Um, that uh, shows up in the show. But um, when I was, um, when I'd started this out and this was my libretto um, that I constructed and and wrote, um, I was thinking, so what is essential in this story? Um, And it, it's, it is it on the most um, literal level. It's, it's the story of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, long secret relationship uh, with uh, the journalist um, uh, Lorena Hickok. And uh, so I have that, but but it's a very particular point in American history, the 1932, 1933, right, as, as FDR is becoming president. And uh, um, there's this um, everything upside down quality, which is um, something we're feeling right, right now, of course, too. Um, and it's at this very moment, there's this very... Uh, um, personal, intimate story, and yet it's set at this this sort of moment of uh, of um, great public upheaval, um, and media is changing, and um, much of um, Eleanor Roosevelt's relationship uh, with the American people um, emerges, of course, through the radio, um, through the sound of her voice. Um, and as a composer, I, I couldn't resist that, the, the chance to dramatize that. Um, so there are really only three characters, there are four characters actually here. Um, the fourth doesn't speak at all. The fourth is a saxophonist, um, um, that I can talk about in a second, but, um, so there's, um, Eleanor and Lorraine Hickok. Um, and then the third character who we just heard, uh, is, uh, simply called outside world. Um, who we hear through the radio, which is on, large onstage radio, but who also interacts with the radio as, as yet another character. Um, so it's a kind of cipher hybrid character um, that's sort of all the outside world collapsed into this one person. Um, and um, that gave me the chance to sort of um, to play um, with who's singing, who's speaking, um, what voice is coming out of the radio. It's not a single voice, but many voices. Um, and so that's what you just heard was, uh, um, a bit of this, uh, depression era ballad, uh, reworked, um, accompanied only by saxophone in this case, um, which was all pre-recorded. Um, and that same saxophone is then is the fourth main character, um, who's called present voice. Um, and that is as, as the title might suggest, um, a voice of now, um, that is um, conjuring and interacting with the sort of historical imaginary. Dan, you know, there's very little representation of same-sex relationships within opera. And what comes to mind for me in regards to Impossible She is Paula Kemper's opera, uh, Patience and Sarah, which is sort of marked as the first opera about a lesbian couple. Were you, are you aware of that opera? And did that influence your piece at all i am aware of it and uh a couple people have uh have written about that um in relation to the impossible she um what i started with um really many years ago um when i first wanted to make this um opera it was it, it was some, about something else than it was with eleanor roosevelt who i've um like so many millions of people um been fascinated by and moved by for so long um, and I've read a great deal of her writing and about her, um, uh, read Blanche Wiesen Cook's extraordinary three volume, uh, uh, sort of mega biography, um, that was a real eye, ear and heart opener. Um, and that's what got me to the story really is this, um, combination um, this sort of almost unbearable combina- combination of like 
the public gaze and public life and um, a person or two people trying to make their way through a difficult world. Um, Powerful. Yeah, it is. You know, the couple of things that strike me always when, especially when you hear pieces for voice, um, especially in a setting, an interesting setting like the one you set this in, is um, is is what drives you to want to write this particular piece? In other words, what drew you to this story, and why did you feel like yes, this is something I need to compose? I think there's not there's not a single answer to that, and at the end of the day, you you do it because you can't not do it. Um, but um, again, so it starts just with this this per person. I wanna I wanna hang out with Eleanor Roosevelt, um, and I compose. I'm a composer, and that's that's um, the best way that I can. Um, that's where I started, at least. Of course, that doesn't solve the question of like how is this dramatic? What is what is the conflict? If there is a conflict, um, why is this being sung? Uh, what part of this story? This is not a biopic. I mean, it's a quite a narrow point in time, really, just 19, part of 1932 and part of 1933 here. Um, but it's um, so I think there's a combination of character and politics um, and I'm, I think it's a really powerful story about the way that um, women's voices um, and experiences have been erased um, and the work that it takes to excavate those histories and to not just to excavate, but to feel through those histories. Um, and of course, in doing that, I was often asking myself the question, who am I to do this? Um, you know, I'm a guy in, in 20 18 and 19 as I was working on this, like, um, this is not my history. This is not a history that, um, to which I lay a particular claim myself. Um, and I think that's how this fourth character came into being this, the saxophonist who's on stage the entire time, um, but doesn't speak, but is, is, is threaded through the music. So there's a string orchestra, um, live, um, in the pit, but he's on stage. He, in this case, um, um, the entire time. And I think that gave me an entry point into this story. Um, Dan, I'm curious. Um, and I think I, I thank you for being a champion for women composers. It's, it's something that I work towards in my career as well, trying to get the music of women out there as much as possible. And I've noticed in so many of your pieces, there is, uh, such an influence uh, your draw, there's just a draw to the feminine. There's so many feminine references in your titles and feminine themes and feminine influences in terms of, um, you know, focusing on Eleanor Roosevelt or, um, you know, we'll, our next piece we'll look at three winged wisdom. There's, is, is that your draw to the feminine? Talk to us about what is your draw to the feminine? It's interesting, right? I mean, I think, you know, as, as I was just saying, there is a politics to it, right? I mean, I think that it is um, part of an artist's duty to um, to to be as aware, maybe. Or... I, 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 I can't find a word. Is it aware? It is. A, is it awake? Um, but I think awareness is important because I think so many people listen. You know, look at our can our musical canon, and by that I mean the pieces yeah, we sort of yeah, and I think like. You know, and I think I think that's that to me, it is a like it is a political and intellectual commitment. Um, I mean, of course, there's an aesthetic one, too, in 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 um, in the case of the the Hildegard that we're about to talk about. Um, um, but it's a mix. Um, and I think it I think at this particular um, moment in um, history and politics, um, it's essential. Um, it's utterly essential. Um, certainly for me and, and I know not just me as well, of course. Um, well, let's take a listen to the piece. This is called, uh, three winged wisdom. Three. 
have on our show Daniel Thomas Davis. We just listened to Three Winged Wisdom, a piece for three, a trio of singers. Uh, Dan, you have assembled the text from Hildegard von Bingen's um, language that she created called lingua ignota, which means literally in the Latin unknown language. Um, some scholars suggest that her creation of her own language was her, may have been her attempt to free the limitations of language um, from free that free from the limitations of language um, to allow it to meet the divine. Um, do you or did you feel a connection to the divine in creating this work? Wow, that's quite a question. Um, uh, well, I've long had a, a particular interest um, in the in the music and visions and uh, and and other work of Hildegard of Bingen. Um, who is this? Um, how do we describe Hildegard? Um, this sort of twelfth-century composer, mystic, um, proto-activist, um, visual artist, sort of proto-playwright, language inventor, um, and of course, we know her mostly uh, as a as a composer of these really extraordinary chants um, that, that sound like no, no, no other music from that period or really any other. Um, and I, I confess, I can't, I can't lay claim to sort of an, sort of an immediate, um, um, uh, connection to Hildegard's, um, idea of, of, uh, the cosmic divine here. Um, but, um, it, it started with a, a collaboration, uh, and it was a commission from modern medieval, uh, trio of voices, um, which was formed uh, a few years ago, a couple years ago, uh, by Jackie Horner Quietek, uh, who many of you might recognize uh, from Anonymous Four fame, um, uh, that she um, started um, with a couple members of Roomful of Teeth, um, uh, Martha Kluver, Kluver and Eliza Bagg, who, who you just heard in that recording. And uh, they were uh, putting together a program that they've been touring with, um, uh, that con just concluded uh, last year, that tour uh, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And uh, um, that was a kind of Hildegard reimagined program um, that, that toggled uh, between Hildegard chants and uh, new works that somehow engaged with Hildegard's um, music or writing. 
Um, and uh, so the piece that I wrote um, uh, took as a starting point uh, this sort of secret imaginary language that Hildegard um, began to create um, called the lingua ignota, um, as well as fragments of, uh, of, of one of her chants. Um, and uh, that's, that's how it started, um, certainly. Um, and Dan, you weave some of her chants, Hildegard von Bingen, for our listeners, what is, um, I know years ago, I'm also not a musicologist or music historian, but um, I used to work for the woman who publishes the music of Hildegard von Bingen. And um, I was interested as a young woman to learn that she is our first uh, written music that we have in history. Um and so I'm just curious, uh, you, you wove some of her chant into your music, is that right? I did, yes. Some of Ovirtus. Yeah. yeah. So borrowing and quotation have had a complex history in music, particularly with the advent of, of copyright. Um, what does it mean to you when you, um, t- you know, take some music from Hildegard von Bingen or you're influenced by it? And how do you approach the idea of borrowing or quote, uh, quotation in your creative output? That's a great question. I think it, it really depends on the context um, and um, and how it's presented and how it's framed. Um, it's of course this is something that artists have been doing forever. Um, on on one level, I think in this particular case, um, I knew that the original chant was going to be performed alongside this piece, um, so it really presented an opportunity to um, to refract that original uh, material. Um, in my own composition. Um, and so you get a bit of the Hildegard in Latin um, with um, what I think of as sort of um, a, a kind of di- entirely different musical layer um, that I created in her invented language. Mm. And you wrote in your description that, um, I love this, you wrote, I frequently had the feeling that Hildegard simply couldn't have been just one person but somehow many minds rolled into one body. She's described as a polymath, which because she had so many different talents and did so much in her quite long life for how long ago she lived, which was in the uh, 11th century. Um, but what did you mean by she, she must be one, many minds rolled into one body? Well, well, really that how could she be good at like, like, you know, a real polymath, how can someone be so good at so many different things, right? Um, so many different interests um, um, beyond just the, the musical interest that I think of her musical work that um, has had the most lasting influence, of course. Um, and I think that's really that in this particular case for, for this piece um, that really informed the structure that I wanted kind of two different voices here. Um, there are actually three voices in the trio, but in, in the in the piece, they're really um, they're really two. One is the the, the Latin chant um, Hildegard, and then you've got this um, um, quite um, wonderfully eccentric, strange, um, invented language maker Hildegard at the same time. So, uh, Dan. We've been talking most about your vocal music, but um, we're going to transition now to some of your instrumental music, starting with Pushed Up the Mountain. This is is a piece, it's a documentary film score. So um, maybe we'll we'll give it a listen. This is Pushed Up the Mountain, scene 17, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. Thank you. 
You're listening to WHUPLP Hillsborough, and we're talking with Daniel Thomas Davis on the Composer Studio. Um, Dan, you um, this this film was supposed to premiere this spring and summer. Um, a documentary about modern China is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of it moves between uh, contemporary China um, looking at environmental destruction, biodiversity, um, and nineteenth um, century imperialism. Um, sort of all told from the perspective of um, a ro- rhododendron flowers. Um, and it's a, a new film by uh, Julia Hazlett, a director that I have worked with before um, on a future documentary, a Close Collaborator. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real joy, um, perhaps a bit bittersweet, uh, to, to share a bit of it here um, since we're um, not gathering for live performances and screenings um, at the moment. But um, yeah, the score is uh, like the film itself, um, which moves across sort of time and place and culture, um, a hybrid. Um, the main performers are the Momentous String Quartet um, in New York, which are dear friends of mine, um, longtime collaborators, um, and uh, the pipa player, uh, virtuoso pipa player, Joey. Um, that's, that's who you just heard, the, those, those five musicians. Wow. Um, so you studied ethnomusicology. Is, um, do you, what is your favorite? I know that you've done some work in Africa. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work in studying other cultures' music? Sure. Um, that's right. I, um, a number of years ago, uh, I uh, studied uh, with a um, baganal, which is a um, harp lyre um, instrument um, in Ethiopia, um, and, uh, also did some, um, some work in Eritrea. Um, but for this piece, um, it was, a uh, more kind of on the ground collaboration, um, uh, both, uh, in, in China when we were shooting, um, some of the score, um, features, uh, uh, interview, uh, interviewees, uh, in the film who are, um, themselves singing um and some of the scores actually woven around their voices um uh as well as uh um some uh studio collaboration um from the recording itself here in new york so what is the most interesting thing you've learned about how about the differences in the way that musicians work together or um music is taught in other cultures oh that's interesting i mean i don't know that i could i could um i could just identify one thing um but there's the first thing that comes to my mind um um was from uh two or three years ago i was uh um i had the, the pleasure to um to run a collaboration at the university uh, where I'm a composition professor which is a binghamton university uh, which is part of the state university of new york um and uh, the National Academy of uh, Chinese Theater Arts in Beijing. And we had a chamber orchestra that I was conducting that uh, consisted of uh, uh, Western uh, Western players um, and uh, Chinese traditional musicians. Um, and this is going to be super um, nerdy in the music right now. But I was conducting, and um, in the first rehearsal, I found out that um, our, our, our guests from Beijing um, were, for the most part... Um, had translated their music into Chinese Chinese notation, which didn't have uh, dynamic marks, which is how loud and soft things are, or measure numbers um, or cues when to come in. So it took a while to uh, to realize that we were literally not looking at the same page, um, <laughs> and uh, it it was one of the more adventurous um, and uh, um, steep learning curve kind of uh, rehearsal processes that I've. Um, I've uh, experienced uh, in my time, but I also um, learned a great deal in the process about just just uh, how much musicians have in common at the same time. Wow! So we're we're really running out of time, um, but we'd love to listen to Real Country, and I, it'd be great if we could listen to all four movements. Sure. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. I- yeah, Dan, we, you know, we, we're thrilled to have you on. We're thrilled to be able to share your music uh, with everyone and among each other, too. We had, we had such a great time getting to know your music and, uh, and really just the full spectrum of, of everything that you're doing as a composer. It's very, very Thank exciting. Thank you so much. And, 
Yeah, absolutely. You're very, very welcome. Um, we're going to listen now to Real Country, which is uh, several movements here. Real quickly, though, just about a minute. Did you want to go ahead and just give this a, a bit of a sense? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is a, a real uh, kind of um, southern roots piece uh, for me, where each movement, there are four movements, um, and each is a, is a kind of... Uh, um, some kind of send, um, send up to uh, or response uh, to a singer or group of singers, um, um, old time singers um, that have uh, meant a lot to me. Um, and uh, we were talking earlier about the, the human voice and the idiosyncrasies of the human voice. So this is a piece that really starts by, by listening to um, a series of singers over and over again, but is then reimagined on a canvas that's entirely instrumental. So this ensemble um, is, uh, is, a uh, wind strings, Hammond organ and, uh, and piano.
Studio, created and produced by Amy Scoria, Anna Linville, and Tara Giridella. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Composer Studio. Pop over to our Facebook page for bonus links, music, tidbits, and news about our featured composers. You can also visit our website at www.composerstudionc.com. If you are a composer and interested in being considered for a feature on our show, reach out to us at composerstudionc at gmail.com or send us a note through our Facebook page or website. We'd love to hear from you. The opening music for our show was composed by Tarek Giridella and the closing music was composed by Amy Scoria. Until next week, thank you for listening and opening your ears to the music of today.